one of my favorite moments was uh, I was playing uh, Arkham City early on, and and I got stuck in a particular spot. I wasn't proceeding through this area the way that I was meant to. And there's nothing quite like having the authoritative voice of Kevin Conroy as Batman saying, this is not going to work. It's like, I need to find a way out of this room. And I'm like, I'm right there with you, Batman. I just, I can't I'm trying. Out, I'm, I'm freaking trying. trying. You know, but it's Do like, I look like I'm having fun five hours into this freaking room I can't get out of? Do I? Right. Because I'm not. I'm not. And then, and then you, uh, I'm willing to do, I'm willing to do subhuman things to get the hell out of this room at this stage. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. We've talked with talent. We've talked with coaches. We've talked with agents. But today, we're talking with someone who creates the words for your head and your heart. Hall Hood is a narrative designer who specializes in creating immersive, player-driven stories. That is so freaking cool. His credits include games published by Electronic Arts, Sony Entertainment Corporation, and Disney. A few names you might know. He's also created stories and characters for, wait for it, Star Wars, Dragon Age, and Mass Effect franchises. He's written for mobile games console titles like the upcoming Ghost of Tsushima for PlayStation. In addition to his work as a writer, Hall mentors aspiring narrative designers and provides expert support on several unannounced projects in development at game studios around the world. We'd love to tell you more, but uh, then we'd need you to sign an NDA here before you could continue to listen, so instead, we'll just jump in. So let's talk voice acting, Hall Hood. Well, I, you know, I, I come... I come from a unique perspective on that because, uh, you know, I write a lot of dialogue uh, in games and that's kind of become one of my areas of specialty is providing good dialogue for actors. Oh my God, we're in love. We're absolutely (laughs) in love. That's what we need. That's what we want. That's what we need. Right, right. Well, and and the truth is, I mean, for a long time, a lot of video game dialogue was fairly poor. You know, it was mostly... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna call out anybody Get specific out. because everybody's just doing the best they can. But you know, the reality is the demands. I think have um, the standards have gotten a lot higher, particularly in the last ten years or so. And people they're much less willing to put up with bad dialogue in a video game. Get to the chopper. Get to the chopper. <laughs> Get to, yes, yes. Or, or the helpful instructions like, mm, I don't think that tactic is going to work the beat the player over the head type thing so yeah right. i mean and that and that's the reality is that you know in the past a lot of video game dialogue really just amounted to giving the player directions mm-hmm. go here do this press x to salute and i think that we're trying to get further away from that we're trying to get to something that's more naturalistic particularly in any game that has well produced cinematics where it's meant to be a more immersive experience, but even in things like Death Stranding or something like that, you know, it's the ability to have interesting dialogue while the player is simply walking across a landscape. I think some of the most fun dialogue in Red Dead Redemption 2 is just when everybody hops on their horses and they're riding into town and it takes 10 minutes to ride there, you know, right? So there's all this stuff, you know, just, just bantering back and forth, just and very naturalistic sounding dialogue. And these are just real people having a real conversation. And, 
it does. It roots the player in the world. It immerses them in that place. And so that's my goal. That's what I'm always trying to achieve when I'm writing dialogue is something that will sound entertaining, but also immerse the player in the world and make them feel like this is something that's really happening and they have some control over events. And because they did this thing, maybe the dialogue changes a little bit or they get a completely different line because of something they did in the gameplay where the game reacts to their actions. And also, I mean, part of it for me too is just looking at it in terms of what actors want to be saying. And I am very much a believer in the concept of less is more. You want to give your actors room to actually perform, to inject some emotion into their lines. And so that's very hard to do when they're having to deliver an epic soliloquy that needs to be finished in 30 seconds because the gameplay is, you know, they're going to be in the middle of a firefight shortly after that. So wait, so what you're trying to say is all these things that I've just been sitting down, these wonderful ideas have been sitting down writing like, I cannot open that door. I can't use that. <laughs> is that what you're telling me? Is that my writing career is over already? I, I'm not saying you can't use it. I'm saying you should think about this. <laughs> you may want to reconsider. No, I mean, and in some cases, you can't get away from it, right? <laughs> One of my favorite moments was uh, I was playing uh, Arkham City early on, and, and I got stuck in a particular spot. I wasn't proceeding through this area the way that I was meant to. And there's nothing quite like having the authoritative voice of Kevin Conroy as Batman saying, this is not going to work. It's like, I need to find a way out of this room. And I'm like, I'm right there with you, Batman. I just, I can't I'm trying. Out, man. I'm, I'm freaking trying. trying. You know, but it's Do like, I look like I'm having fun five hours into this freaking room I can't get out of? Do I? Right. Because I'm not. I'm not. And then, and then you. Uh, I'm willing to do, I'm willing to do subhuman things to get the hell out of this room at this stage. <laughs> Just give me direction, Batman. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did want him to be kind of like the door. It's right over there. <laughs> turn the handle. You just have to go through the door. Just turn the handle. <laughs> Open the door. <laughs> How yeah. often do you want to write dialogue that that that, that ends up like that? You freaking moron. <laughs> Open the door. That's what I really want to write is the dialogue when the player finally does what they're supposed to do after banging their head against the wall for 10 minutes and be like, finally, I wasn't going to tell you. I was just waiting for you to figure it out. <laughs> oh, thank God. Maybe you should play Polly Wally Boodles. Right. <laughs> Enough of Arkham City for you. There's actually one in Hearthstone that I just came across. Um, so you think you might get this? Oh, no, I, I totally know the answer. I just, uh, I, I, I want to see how you do this. You know, it's your <laughs> boss telling you this. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my. But yeah, there are other considerations, too, that I think writers who are only used to creating dialogue for the page don't necessarily think about. And so when I've taught classes about interactive writing before and, and specifically writing for actors, there's just things that you have to kind of remind people of, things like sibilance, where it's like, don't put a lot of S's in your dialogue. If you're going to ask your actor to say, sure, I'll shoot over to the security station shortly, you know, sort of thing. It's like, <laughs> that actor is going to hate your guts for that. Especially when he has to get into a character, right? Right, exactly. I'll tell you who else is going to hate your guts is your editor. Right. Your editor is going to really hate <laughs> 
Okay, now, now you're an old pappy country guy. Exactly. What did he say? Yeah, we got it. Okay, move on. Next. Right. Can we just replace that character with white noise? It'll be a bit of the same thing. <laughs> you know, you should be what the hell? So, no, what the hell, man? <laughs> but yeah, but it's funny because you'll still, every once in a while, I'll catch myself and I'll have written something like that. <laughs> That's why I always try to read my own dialogue out loud because if I can't say it, I'm not going to ask anybody else to say it. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's a really good thing. I think anyone who writes anything to be performed in any medium should always be able to read and actually start to act out the scene just a little bit. You know, yeah. I don't yeah. care if you're an actor or not an actor. You should be able to present the scene to be able to get a handle on what it is and if it plays and how it plays. Right. Right. Not only to be able to forward the storyline, but really to make sure that what you've done is something that actors can really do and do well without having to, that becomes very natural. Right, right. Yeah. Also, another thing is pacing. Oh, huge. All time things. Like if I have a back and forth conversation between characters, I will time it and I'll time it down to how long does it take to say each individual line, knowing full well that once it gets assembled, a lot of times these things are not recorded all at once. They're recorded in pieces. And sure. really, you know, th then they get sti well, <laughs> I don't have to tell you this, but, uh, but it's the kind of thing where you can't account for whatever gaps might have to occur as these things are getting stitched together. It just depends on how quickly the game can process its audio and put it in front of them. So, and making sure that there are pauses in the middle of things so that emotional beats have a chance to land and things like that. How did you get into interactive writing? Because I'm guessing, total guess, that you weren't 12 years old. I want to write for video games, <laughs> you know? And I want to write trees that players can figure out on their own. I mean, there had to be some sort of a path. There had to be some sort of a path to get you there, a tree. Right, like, right. Like an algorithm path. Yeah, I mean, I, I started out, well, I was always interested in, in uh, film and still am. I love movies. I love TV and the kinds of stories that are told in a visual medium. But I was also, you know, I've been a, a gamer my whole life. You know, I was lucky enough to be part of the first generation of gamers and wasted way too many quarters in arcades. I owned a ColecoVision and an Atari 2600 and all kinds of crazy things over time. So so I'd always loved games. And in particular, I really enjoyed the games that were produced by Bioware and these kind of deep, immersive role-playing games where there were all these crazy dialogue branches and players could dramatically change the tone of their story just based on how they responded to a particular NPC. That kind of stuff really appealed to me. And then a friend of mine alerted me to the fact that Bioware Austin was spinning up. I was living in Austin at the time already and uh, heard that they were opening a studio here. And I just was like, this seems like a lot of fun. I would love to do this. So I had the contact information for the people in charge of, of the new studio and introduced myself to them. And they gave me a writing test that I failed miserably, but, <laughs> but they, but it was, uh, they saw my potential and, uh, you know, felt like they could probably, uh, train me up for that. And, and a couple of hundred dollar bills later, uh, yeah. right, 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 right. And well, and some photos that will remain in a vault forever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Potentially compromising. <laughs> well, they're always good to have a few of those in your back pocket. Yeah. You got to pull out all the stops. Right. So was BioWare your first job out of college? 
No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, okay. I, uh, okay, okay. I, I worked for quite a long time with a uh, independent uh, producer who was, and we were developing a variety of projects for film and television and things like that. And ultimately nothing that really went anywhere, but it was great training. Yeah. It was an opportunity for me to get to do what I loved and, and uh, to make all the mistakes and get to a place where when I reached out to Bioware, I at least had some amount of skill to demonstrate to them. So yeah, I did that for quite a few years, doing the Hollywood thing, taking the meetings and cool. you know, sending scripts and things like that. And uh, it was fun. you know. I mean, I had, I had a really good time with it. But uh, when I saw this opportunity to, to work on this game, and then once I eventually found out that the game was going to be Star Wars, and specifically Star Wars The Old Republic, which I think to this day may still hold the uh, Guinness World Record for the most lines of recorded voiceover dialogue in a video game. Very cool. Yeah, it had a few. That's how I found my way into the industry. And, and you know, I've, I've been there now for, my goodness, 15 years, I think. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm an old man uh, in this industry. So, yeah, get off my lawn. So that's interesting. So I thought you worked at Origin or at least at Digital Anvil, but that wasn't where you were. I worked at Origin very, very briefly mm. on Ultima Online 2 before that project got shut down. And so that was kind of my first taste of writing for video games. But I was literally writing combat barks and vendor barks. And, ah. you know, it was it was not... Uh, you cannot open that door. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, <laughs> come look at my wares. I have many things to sell you. You know, <laughs> you got to come up with 7,000 ways for somebody to say, I'm coming to kick your ass now. So, yeah, that was... It was an interesting start to the uh, to the experience of writing for games. And, and obviously, there's still a ton of that kind of work to be done out there. But I, I've kind of moved away from that kind of thing. It can be fun to do. I still do it on various projects. Heaven knows I wrote a lot of those kinds of lines of dialogue for uh, Star Wars The Old Republic and, and other things. Have you ever written the line Grenade Incoming? No, but I think I have. <laughs> I believe I have literally written Incoming! Just that. So I didn't specify what was incoming. It could have been anything. So, <laughs> yes. Beer me. Incoming! Right, right. Yeah. I'm out of ammo! Yeah, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> yep. there you but, go. Uh, yeah. So, what are you seeing as far as dialogue becoming more prominent into mobile games? Well, I think that the trick with mobile games remains that it's a small screen. Right. Very often, people do not have their sound on, right, when they're playing mobile sure. games. So a lot of it is still just text-based, which you can get away with certain things in text that you can't get away with when it's actually going to be recorded. There's a game I downloaded recently. It's called Murder in the Alps. And it was mm. really interesting because it was set in the 20s and it's a whole murder mystery thing and all that stuff. But it has audio dialogue. Nice. Um, nice. All throughout. And the way they get around that is when they move to their interstitials, they set up cartoon panels. Right. And the way they do it is so interesting because the voice goes with the cartoon panel. So if you have it off, you can still read the dialogue, right? Right, right. But you change panels and the panels overlap. So you have three or four panels sometimes on the same screen before it switches to the next screen. And as fast as you decide to hit it, it moves to the next. So if you're reading it, you can just buzz through it. If you're listening to the audio, you can make the audio sound as naturally paced as you want to. Nice. It does cut it off if you hit it too early before the other one's done. Right. I found that to be really interesting because that's been a thing that 
I've been wondering is at what point do mobile games truly have full-blown audio dialogues throughout because of the increased bandwidth and connectivity and all that kind of thing that allows that to be a viable option? Well, I think the game changer for all of that really is the Bluetooth headphones, right? The earbuds where you're not wired anymore. You just have the earbuds in. And so now it's much more accessible. Like Whereas before, when it was a wired hookup, that was more cumbersome for people. But now you see people walking around all day long with their earbuds in. It's a new point of access. and, And I think that mobile games in particular are going to continue to get more elaborate in terms of what they can do. And, you know, as the storage ability of phones just continues to expand, it's not a big deal to download a bunch of audio files that are part of a game to your phone or to just stream it, right? I mean, that's, streaming that's the other yeah, big Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think streaming is the other big one, right? Of course. This conversation just makes me think, I remember... I'm going to say 15 years ago, but it could even be longer ago than that. It had to be longer ago than that. It was one of the first GDCs I went to, and I remember... I remember 15 years ago. (laughs) I'm going to replace you with white noise, I'm telling you. (laughs) But there was a talk that I was at, and it was somebody who was talking about, I'm going to say, the Xbox... It was a second or third generation console, but it was, you know, not one of the first ones. But right. early enough that they were talking about how cool it was that you were going to have a separate chip that was going to allow for two megabytes of audio. <laughs> and how this wow. was a big deal. You know, like right. like we're gonna have a, an entire two megs. And just thinking about that now, like, holy shit, we actually did that kind of crap. Right. Cause I remember thinking the same, like, yes, no more MIDI triggering. And it's still nothing. <laughs> Well, I think that's one of the interesting things, too. We're starting to see a lot of these old games from previous console generations that are getting not necessarily just ported, but completely remastered, like you're seeing with Final Fantasy Mm -hmm. uh, VII. And, you know, one of the realities of that is when you go back to those old games, the audio files are, it's a different level of compression. The fidelity is completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now you're starting to run into this well. I guess we have to re-record all of this, right? And then at that point, it's the people that played the original game are like, but it doesn't sound like the original, you know? It's like, yeah, but it also doesn't look like the original. So, right. uh, you know, it's that's part of the, the remake cost. But I think that that is a hidden cost that I think a lot of people that want to go and, and remaster old games never really think about in advance is that, yeah, you're going to have to remaster your audio, and that's actually a big deal. It's not just updating the graphics. All of the audio is going to need to be right brought up to a modern standard as well. Maybe more than two megs? I'm just asking. A little. Asking for a friend. Just, just, just a touch. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come find me, Shoki. <laughs> Right, right. Two two megs for like one little bit of uh, looping music that plays as you're wandering the grasslands. But yeah, <laughs> so that. that's it. <laughs> so what are you seeing as far as convergence between media? Well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of convergence, you're getting live video. And of course, you know, this has been around for a long time, right? Like the idea of full motion video in a video game is not new. It's been around for decades. But sure. Now, because of streaming, 
it is much better than it used to be because there isn't going to be that long pause where the computer has to go find the other video clip on the disc. It's like it's right there and it knows how to pull it up. And so increasingly, people are beginning to understand that they can have more control over what their viewing experience of, of content looks like. And it's not a big jump to go from, here's my Netflix library of 10,000 things I can watch to I'm watching this one thing, but I'm actually changing the nature of the story. I'm seeing a different version of this story from the person in the next house or whatever. And so how do you write for that? That's where you you really have to start thinking about player agency. That's the big difference between writing for an interactive games narrative versus more traditional linear narratives, right? The player is in control. It is the player's story. It's not yours. You don't get to control every single aspect of it. But what you do need to do is make sure that no matter what the player chooses to do, they're getting a great story, that you're rewarding them for the choices that they're making. Yeah. So, and I think it's my favorite thing to do. It's part of the reason why I've stayed with games is because I get really excited about those prospects because when you write a linear story, it's like, well, okay, that's a, that's the story and it's only going to be that way. But when you have a story that might have six different endings based on what the player does and where the cast members can perish in the middle of the story based on player choices and things like that. I think that's really exciting because it's an opportunity to fully explore a narrative from almost every conceivable angle. So you don't have to settle on one particular version of the story. And as a writer, I find that really liberating. It's a lot of fun for me to do that kind of thing. It's like, oh, but I really like this version of the story too. Great, I can do both. So, you know, it's... Uh, there you go. Having done games for a while now, and I'm kind of curious where you are on this as a writer. There's that tipping point that you get to where you start off and you have all these grandiose ideas. We'll say from a writer's standpoint, just to use as an example... I have 15 different storylines I could do. And a lot of this is not just practical on the amount of time you have to write or the time you have to do. It becomes budgetary. It becomes time. It becomes just the business of games of you've got to deliver something because we've been working on this for two years or whatever the time frame is. What's that spot where you start before you get to that tipping point to where your producer starts saying, yeah, we got to cut this down to X number of streams or whatever it may be. Does that happen super early? Does that happen midway? Is there even a rhyme or reason to it? Yeah. Ideally, when you sit down to write uh, an interactive narrative, particularly one that features branching and a lot of player agency and player choice with different outcomes and different scenes that unfold based on the player choices, ideally, you know what your assets are before you go into it. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, this is the environment players will be in. This is the number of character models we have. And it, like mobile games in particular, they have very specific budget requirements. And so they may tell you, it's like, look, we only have budget for art for X number of unique characters. So please don't write a story with a cast of thousands. <laughs> we can't do that. Right. And, and so ideally, you know that going in. Is that when all your NPCs all look the same? Right. Well, I, I try to get around it where I'm like, this is just guard number six. And all you got, it's just a palette swap, right? You're just yeah, going to change just their just color. Change his guard outfit colors. Yeah. He, he's guarding for the other team. There yeah. The, the art team is putting out a hit on me. You know, it's like, this guy sucks. He <laughs> has no respect for us. So there's that. But I've also had moments too where, well, this happened with uh, Star Wars The Old Republic, where, you know, I just happened to write a couple of words in a document and a line of time. 
dialogue and the art director came by and said, those two words are going to cost $150,000. So, wow. wow. So I was like, oh. Okay, so what, what were the words? What were the words? I got to know what $150,000 word sounds like. It's three words. So it's about $50,000 a word. Uh, it was hut pleasure barge. So I was like, yes. I've been to that strip club. <laughs> the hut pleasure barge. The, the hut on... pleasure barge. Yeah. Yeah. It's in Vegas, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the Vegas of space. Funny. That's where I always went just to watch the NFL games. <laughs> I just went because they had cheap beer, honey. Seriously. I didn't. I, I don't know. I just went for the cheap beer. I just, right. Uh, yeah. I didn't know there were strippers. I didn't. <laughs> I, I guess I should have known when it wasn't cheap beer, when it was like $12 a beer. It's like, ah, oh, this is place. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. We've completely derailed you. Hut. <laughs> Hut, hut travel Well, bar? that would make sense. $12 a beer, $50,000 a word. It all works out. Right. It's a hut pleasure barge. Pleasure barge. Of it was basically it a, it was a yacht party. Ah. The way that we ultimately managed to get around it was that uh, we decided to have hut pleasure barges all over the game. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am the reason why those things exist everywhere. So And that, and that was cheaper? Yeah. <laughs> well, because you're allocating the cost across 100 assets instead of one. Ah, exactly. So now they were only $150 yeah. a piece instead of right. uh, 150000 Gotcha. But that was one of my early lessons in how very inexpensive words can be compared to everything else in a game. <laughs> so where do you normally come in in the process as far as truly starting to write dialogue? Is there a, a typical... I think every studio is a little bit different. Every project is a little bit different. Some studios really want to prove out their gameplay first and make sure that the core gameplay loop is really fun and exciting and they don't have to worry about changes to that and then start layering content into that. But a lot of the games that I work on, the writer comes in right at the beginning and the writer is very much part of the process of developing content and deciding what the gameplay will be like and what the story will and won't be based on the player's actions. And so, in my opinion, it's much better when the writer gets involved first. Sure. The earlier a writer is involved, the better, because a lot of times there's only so much you can do telling a story with a bunch of assets that are already in place. Sure. It can be a lot of fun. There is kind of this lovely Mad Libs quality to the whole thing where it's like, okay, I've, I've got a blender and I've got, you know, it's like a spaceship and I've got 16 cuberts. All right, I got to make a story out of this. I cannot open yeah. the spaceship. <laughs> I cannot open the spaceship. Open um, the door. Yeah, right. Well, the, the, the way that you fuel the spaceship is by putting cuberts in the blender and then put the with that into the, you know, there you go. the spaceship. There you go. So, so, you know, you put the cuberts in the blender and then you just push this button and... <laughs> Everybody's like, what? Cubert? Uh, that's less true now, thanks to yeah. uh, Wreck-It Ralph. And make sure to set to frap. Um, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, to me, it's the earlier I can be involved, the better. And I, I tend to seek out projects where I know I'm going to be involved pretty early on. The least satisfying projects for me are usually the ones where everything's kind of already in place. There's no opportunity to change anything. And it's just insert pretty words here. And that can be fun, but it can also be incredibly frustrating. And I think that the reason that game writing had the negative reputation that it had for such a long time is because frequently writers, no matter how talented they were, they were brought in at the last minute mm -hmm. of uh, development. Right. And there's only so much you can do a lot of the time. So I have this great idea for a game now. 
we're going to take something with every cliched game line and we're going to call it something like, I cannot open the door. And we're just going to make a game around it. (laughs) (laughs) Or or I cannot open the door or my other favorite, that's not going to work. Oh, that would be perfect. What's what's the name of the game? That's not going to work. And the entire game is nothing but things that don't work. That's not going to work. Right. Right. Oh, it'll sell. Surely, right? <laughs> when you get to the point where you're actually writing dialogue, do you actually write with an actor in mind or any individual person in mind? Or is it all just natural freeform thought and then, well, that kind of reminds me of so-and-so. Or do you just go completely off the range and everything's just in your head? Yeah, I mean, I've done both. You know, in some cases, an actor has already been cast for a particular role. Sure in advance. And so you sort of know what they're comfortable with, what sort of dialogue they are best with, and you sort of write to those strengths. And then I've had other times where Star Wars The Old Republic, we had so many characters, literally thousands of characters in the game. And I believe it. eventually, I think we employed every voice actor on the planet at the time that we were making the game to do all these voices. And and some people came back for multiple things. But when we were developing characters, we would frequently, to help out casting directors and the audio team that was responsible for recording this stuff, with a character, we might add a little thing like, dream casting would be this famous actor. Sure. This famous actor in this particular role. That's kind of what we're going for here. We want to evoke that. And then also respecting the fact that the voice actor is going to bring their own unique quality to it. Sure. Now, is is that more common than not even today for the way you write? Or do you just kind of write based on a character and whatever, whoever walks into it walks into it? Yeah, I mean, that ultimately, I'm going to just try and write the best lines of dialogue that I can that work for the for the game, for the player experience, mm-hmm. and then trust the actor to do it. And I, I have to say, I mean, I've, I've seen some really terrible lines of dialogue that I wrote be delivered beautifully. <laughs> so I, I have great respect for voice actors because of that. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear it and I'll be like, oh my God, they totally sold that terrible line. How did I even let that out the door? <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? How often do you sit in on sessions? Um, it varies according to the project. Like, you know, with Star Wars The Old Republic, I barely got to listen in at all just because we were cranking out so much content over the years of development that we spent on that project. And so more often than not, my involvement would be with casting of major roles. Sure. So they would send us takes. We would come up with like dummy scripts for the actors. And let's decide which one of these is the best. I think the one time that I actually had the opportunity to have real control over the casting. And God, I wish I could have been involved in the uh, recording sessions was I was the one when we were trying to decide who would be the voice of our Sith Emperor in the original release of Star Wars The Old Republic. I was the one who sent around the clips of Doug Bradley as Pinhead in the Hellraiser movies. And that's who we got. Awesome. So I actually, I got to write a bunch of dialogue for Doug Bradley and, and he was brilliant and amazing. And that was a really rewarding experience there. But I've also... There've been plenty of times where I've written stuff, sent it off, had no idea who was going to be performing it and would not hear it until it was basically in the game, you know, already in place and um and and I've had really great experiences with that as well. I think if you're working with great people, you don't have to worry about it too much. And also, I tend to be very open to alternative interpretations. Like I'm not oh, the line must be delivered like this. Right. 
You must put the emphasis on this syllable. You don't want to do that to the actors. You want to give them plenty of room to bring whatever they, what they have to the table. So, And that's why you're still working today. <laughs> right. Can I take that and just, you know, put that on a loop and send that to a whole lot of people? <laughs> I was going to say, that's a nice approach. I wish there were more. It's, right. uh, yeah. Truth be told, it is less of a problem than it was. Yes. Like a lot of things, everybody's understanding more and more that that's part of why you bring the act to the table. But gosh, a number of projects, especially not too long ago, where you have this person who has done this brilliant audition and they're a great actor and they come in and you have somebody who usurps the process because you're exactly right. It's like, oh no, I heard it. I wrote it this way in my head. It's like, God, your head, it must be a scary place. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to visit that head. Get out of the head. I I think that uh, my experience has been that the great ideas always find expression somewhere. And uh, there's there's never any wasted writing or wasted creative effort because it's always going to inform the next thing that you do. Somewhere well, pretend down the line. I am an aspiring writer and not somebody who's like, oh, I want to be a writer when I grow up, but somebody who actually can write and mm-hmm. is looking at career choices and wants to go into not just video game writing, but interactive writing. What's the path? What's the thing that you tell them to do? What are the exercises they do? What's what's your advice to them? Always be working on the fundamentals, obviously, of storytelling and character building and how to craft a really good line of dialogue. Because the truth is, 90% of the writing that you wind up doing in games is going to be dialogue. You know, it is going to be something that's performed by an actor and delivered to the player frequently during gameplay, sometimes depending on the project during a cinematic cutscene or something like that. Play a lot of games and get really comfortable with the idea of nonlinear storytelling. Learn how to interrogate a plot so that there are trap doors in it, so that if a player chooses to do this, you can still get them to a satisfying conclusion, you know, even though they've chosen to bypass this other stuff you thought was really cool. You have to fall in love with every parallel universe version of the story that you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things in Bioware games is that. They'll frequently let players be evil and do bad things. And you have to be comfortable with that. You have to say, you know what, it's just a game. And players may want to do really horrible things because it's just a game and they're free to do that. And that doesn't mean you have to not portray realistic consequences to those terrible things. But it still needs to feel like a valid player choice. You don't want to invalidate it. And I think understanding the concept of player agency and the things that are fun for a player versus the things that are not. In a traditional story, reversals and catastrophic events, you know, occurring to the protagonist, that's part and parcel of a good story, right? It's a little bit different when the protagonist is attached to the player, because then you run the risk of the player feeling like they're being trolled by the game or the writer. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm just being abused by this game. I hate this game, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. So you have to, you're always having to thread this needle between generating a satisfying and rich dramatic experience with the fact that to a certain extent, with a lot of games, there is some player fulfillment there. There are games where players know going in, I'm going to get my ass kicked by this game. <laughs> this is going to be one of those games. It's going to be kind of rough, and but it's that's the nature of this particular game. This is what this art form is about. Mm-hmm. And so that's just some of the, I guess, the artsy fartsy answer to some of that stuff. But in terms of like the practical things, get comfortable with interactive writing. There are a lot of tools 
available online that you can use to create branching narratives and actually see them experience them for yourself, right? I think there's nothing more instructive than actually creating your own branching narrative and then seeing how it plays out. Mm -hmm. Seeing, you know, getting a friend to sit down and play it in front of you and seeing how they react to the choices that you've made. Mm -hmm. Things like Inkle and Choice Script, Choice of Games. Now, Choice of Games is not, they don't have audio or video. It's very choose-your-own-adventure. It's all text-based. You're still limited by space and player attention span and things like that. And so you learn very quickly how to write lean and tight on that kind of thing. Well, also it is you're working on the craft of writing. So therefore, I'm not saying that visuals and things like that don't help inform and drive the story because they do. But if what you're concentrating on is writing, something like that's perfect. Right, exactly. If you're focused just on the pure mechanics of storytelling and characterization and what can and can't happen in branching. I think that's really important. But I'm also, I'm a big fan of environmental storytelling in games. If you know that there's going to be art, lean into that. Mm -hmm. Use that, call attention to it. Let players find storytelling things where this is just graffiti that's scrawled on a wall. But if they stop and look at it, they're like, oh, that's really cool. I learned something by, I I have a sense of who wrote this and what they're trying to convey. I like that a lot. I'm also, I mean, I'm a big fan of obviously audio. Audio is huge and it's not just dialogue, right? It's, It's sound effects, it's ambient music, it's things like that. I mean, the best horror games are always the ones that have great sound. Mm-hmm. If you can hear the monster coming and it starts out subtle, it's really exciting. So mm-hmm. that's a big part of it. But also just like in terms of practical things, short of making your own games, which I do think there's a lot of benefit to be had from that. You know, a lot of times when people reach out to me about wanting to work in the games industry, I ask them, do you have any kind of a portfolio of interactive writing? Is there something that I can actually just go play? And I think that's where some of the text-based things become more useful. There are some of them where it's like you just play it in a web browser. There doesn't have to be audio. There doesn't have to be video or illustrations or anything like that. But it's just demonstrating that you understand the craft. And it is a very unique and particular craft, and not everybody can bend their creative will to it. It requires a certain amount of discipline to really embrace it. And some people want that freedom and simultaneously the freedom to do as they wish and then the control to tell exactly the story that they want to tell. But as I always try to tell people, it's like, it's not about you and it's not about what you want. It's about providing the player with a bunch of options to tell the kind of story that they want to tell. Mm -hmm. Nice. So likewise, any advice or direction or suggestion for voice actors? For voice actors, I think it's fine to push back. Just because somebody hands you a line of dialogue, bring your own thing to it. Don't feel like you have to work with it. I remain in awe of the voice actors that made some of my terrible lines of dialogue sound good, but I wish they'd just changed the line. (laughs) I I do wish it was more of a collaborative process, because there have been times where I've been in on a, a recording session and I've listened to an actor struggle with a line, and we would just very quickly work out, what if we said this instead? Yep. What if we just removed this phrase or changed or used this different word, which is close enough and easier to say? Yep. That's, um, that's a lot of it. The other thing too, and it's difficult based on the project, but try to get a sense of what's going on with each line of dialogue. Generally speaking, on a lot of the projects I work on, we try to provide actors with a synopsis of the scene. But beyond that also, what happened just before this probably and what's going to happen after? so that they can understand that and bring that to their performance. Because I know it's, it's incredibly frustrating for voice actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To have context around your lines. 
Yeah. Especially the way video lines are written and presented to voice actors. You get a giant spreadsheet. Right. Right. And they go, okay, okay, now go to line 273. Okay, now go to line <laughs> right. 1,769. And you're like, okay, what's going on? Where am I? And and what's happening? Right, right. Why am I yelling? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you can pick that up. And a lot of times you do have to ask. But man, I love the collaborative concept. I want to work with you. <laughs> Young man, I cannot open this goddamn door. <laughs> See, that's totally different. See, I love that. Door. Door. Door is the critical, yeah, door is the critical thing here. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Paul, it has been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. This has been great, man. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, as we do, Randall. BT, open the goddamn door. <laughs> Hall? BT, that's not gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, until next time. Thanks, guys. Good words and fun times from Hall Hood, interactive writer and dialogue creator extraordinaire. Thanks for sharing, Hall. It's been a blast. Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Randy Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent virtually anywhere. And me, Brian Talbot, actor and all-around creative guy. If you have comments, questions, ideas for other show topics you'd be interested in hearing, or you just want to let us know what you think, drop us a line at bt at letstalkvoiceover.com or go to our website, www.letstalkvoiceover.com. That's letstalkvoiceover.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other places. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter, just because. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk VoiceOver. We'll talk again real soon. <laughs>